the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. What if we could reprogram old cells to be young again? What if we could rewrite our DNA to guarantee a disease-free future? What if we could eliminate obesity? What if 90 were the new 40? Breakthroughs in aging science are happening every day, and as a result, living to 100, 120, or even 130 will become increasingly common. According to Dr. Michael Roizen and Albert Ratner, this new reality will have far-reaching effects on work, family life, and retirement, making longevity the next social disruptor. Dr. Roizen and Albert join us today to talk about how current science and technology will revolutionize our ability to live longer, younger, and better. Dr. Roizen and Albert are the co-authors of the book, The Great Age Reboot, Cracking Longevity Code for a Younger Tomorrow. Welcome, Dr. Roizen and Albert. Thank you so much for joining us. The privilege to join you, Joan. Thank you. I'm getting older, and I don't want to miss out on my chance of living to be older than 100. So is what we're going to talk about today something that is a reality right now, or is it for some time down the road? And let's begin with you, Dr. Roizen. Um, We've expanded life expectancy by about two and a half years every 10 years since 1890, from about 41 to 78 today. We expect in the next 10 years, it'll go up by 30 years. Now, you can do an awful lot to prepare for it and to benefit from that. So, and someday we expect that you'll go in a car wash at age 90 um, on one end and come out 40 on the other end. But for now, we think it's going to be organ by organ. And so um, the book really has three parts. The first part is on the science of these 14 areas of research into aging mechanisms that makes it likely that um, 90 will be the new 40. The second part is on the economics and why this will be a societal boon and how you can take advantage of it. And the third part is of the 180 things or so that you can do now that change your rate of aging so it's very likely you will benefit from the the advanced science. So let me give you, this is Al Radner, let me give you the good news first. The good news is that one of the conclusions we've come to because of the Genome Project is that if you're 25 years or younger today, you will live to be 125. At the other end of the spectrum, if you're 75 years today, you will live to be 100. And the good news is that you will live to those ages. But nobody wants to live to those ages if you're not going to be healthy and productive and love the life you're living. So this breaks into two pieces. There's a medical piece that will happen over the next 10 years. It will add this 30 years to your life and things that you can do. And a lot of these things are personal things. A lot of these things are to eat the foods that you love, that love you back, to have a posse of people that you'll live around. 
So this solves a lot of problems. This solves the problems of income inequality because this medicine applies to everybody because everybody can have a posse because everybody can get enough sleep and everybody can do the things you need to do. I'm now 94 years old. I have 18 stents. I had two heart attacks started when I was 70 years old. I feel better now than I did then. And it's because of the things that I'm doing. So Michael, why am I, what have I done or what can people like me do? How does that work? So it's pretty easy because you get to change. We used to think when the Human Genome Project started that there would be 300,000 genes found, but there are only 22,500. And so what they called the rest of the DNA was junk DNA, but it isn't. It's switches that control your genes. And those switches, you 80% of those switches, you get to turn on or off by your actions. So, for example, when you stress a muscle by either walking or playing ping pong or uh, pickleball or playing with your grandkids, whatever you're doing, when you stress a muscle, you turn on a gene that makes a small protein that goes across the blood-brain barrier that makes the brain bigger and the memory center bigger so you're less likely to develop dementia. So there are a whole bunches of things like that, Joan, uh, that are in the book and on the website at greatageReboot.com or in our app, Reboot Your Age, that let people function younger for longer. Dr. Roizen, this is a possibility, but will it be a probability? And the reason I ask that, our kids today are the unhealthiest of previous generations. So unless they make the lifestyle changes that are necessary, is this something that can really happen? Well, you brought up a outstanding point, Joan, in that um, we aren't living healthy and we're getting more obese and not choosing healthy habits. So there will still be unforced errors, you know, texting while driving, vaping, smoking, etc. But the great news is that many of these changes help eliminate, many of the research areas help eliminate chronic disease. And I'll give you one of Albert's favorite, which is white fat to brown fat. When we're young, we have um, brown fat, that's when we're infants, and it uses energy to keep us warm. When we're old, we develop white fat, which causes inflammation and increases the risk of type 2 diabetes increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, cancer, dementia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Well, in three animal species now, the largest of which is sheep, they've taken that white fat of of us mature adults, if you will, but of the mature sheep, and regressed it to what we call mother fat or pluripotent fat, fat that can turn into either white fat or brown fat, They came from the same origin and turned it, the white fat regressed to mother fat, turned into brown fat, makes you thin and eliminates obesity. So if this is true, then obviously Weight Watchers goes out of business and Haagen-Dazs has a thriving business, as our third co-author, Peter Lindemann, would say. But what, what we're learning how to do is eliminate a lot of those chronic diseases. Now, let me give you another one. Addiction is thought to be a genetic disease. So the addiction to opioids may be a genetic disease that we can knock out that gene through gene editing. So there are a lot of hopeful things that may occur. um, But in the meantime, you're right to take full advantage of this you need to do you need to make choices that you love doing that are healthy. Part of that comes about because what was discovered is that eighty percent of all deaths are caused by six things cholesterol, blood, sugar, stress, cigarette smoking, body mass. And we control those. We always thought that the genes controlled us, but we control the genes. So we 
if we understand it right, we determine how long we live and how well we live. So to us, longevity is not how long you live. To us, longevity is how long have you lived healthy, happy, and productive. Our society doesn't place much importance on elders. You know, we have this mentality that when you get to be a certain age, you're no longer a productive member of society. But those of us that are aging now, as you can see, we're we're taking on new things as we get older. What type of a change must happen within our society so that we can learn to value this longevity? And let's begin with you, Albert. So what basically happens, there is a tremendous shortage of population in the world, believe it or not, particularly working age, because a good thing happened. And that was women had the right to choose whether to have children or not. So the birth rate has gone down enormously. As a result of that, you can see in the workforce today, we don't have enough workers. We don't think that changes over time. But we think as age comes into being and you live longer, if you work 20 years longer on a 40-year work life, that's an increase of 50% of everything that you've done during your lifetime. So the biggest change that we point out in the book is that we believe the population in 2050 is going to be 451 million people. And the Congressional Budget Office says it's going to be 33 Million people. No, 307, 366 million. 366 again, again, 33 million. Again, 33 million. So that differential, working, playing with their grandkids, that wisdom eliminates most of the problems we have income inequality, shortage of workers. So that's one of the results of what happens. And Michael points out that if you're 65 now, and you know you're going to live to be 110, you're going to want to do other things. And that's what's important. But it's all in your hands. If you look at people today in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, we're starting new careers. We're starting, you know, I look at like someone like Paul McCartney. He's 80 years old. He's not the 80-year-old grandfather when I was a child. So you can see the, the shift that's taking place. That's right. And it's going to be progressive. And not only that, but but when you, as Mr. Ratner points out, um, when you look at the uh, change in population, most of the gain in population, we expect to be 80 and older. That means that ageism, that the thing you cited before that is current, um, and that means that we don't value people in the America who are older. I mean, it's different in Japan, different in other countries. But in America, we don't value people um, as they get older as much as other countries do. I think and we think that will change because as, as Mr. Ratner, for example, is 94, he believes um, and, and until a few years ago, he was chair and CEO of um, Four City Enterprises, which he did for 25 years. But he believes that at this age, he can be more productive because he's got a bigger Rolodex. He's got a bigger, he obviously uses it on the iPhone now. He's got a bigger contact list, and people will talk to him, and he can do more and be more innovative and free to be more innovative now than he ever was. So, in fact, the we think that the worry about ageism will disappear as more and more of us become elderly. Dr. Rosen, what do you think will happen economically if we have people living to such an extended age and we start giving them Social Security benefits and things like that in their 60s? How are we going to sustain that? Well, what will happen is if we now think work life is between 25 and 65 or 40 years, it's likely to expand to 25 to 85 because you're not going to want to retire at 65 and do nothing for 50 years if you're going to live to 115 in relatively good health. So the point is that we think that the reason we'll get more human capital is that we will extend working productive productive lives by 50%. If you do that, um, 
you don't have, you'll continue to pay taxes, you'll continue to pay Medicare and into Social Security, and those trust funds, which are predicted to run out of money and to go belly up or go bust um, by the mid-2030s, won't. They will be flush with money again, and that means um, that, in fact, we will um, have a uh, economy that is good. Now, what you brought up is, though, in order for this to be a reality, we will have to gradually increase the eligibility years for Social Security and Medicare. Um, they'll, we'll have plenty of money. And so, as our co-author Peter Linneman points out, Americans will um, eventually do the right thing if there's enough money. Political fights will occur, um, but if there's enough money, we'll do the right thing so that retirement can be um at a later age, but can be golden again and not worry about pensions and Social Security and Medicare running out of money. And let me give you just one other example. In coming to the conclusion, would have 170 and a half million more people. The way we came to that conclusion was that people would live longer because of this medicine. It now works that we have 942,000 deaths per thousand people. We believe within the 10-year period that will go down to 2.2. We'll save more than a trillion dollars just in medicine. So there are all kinds of savings. And the productivity of the additional people, the 300% increase in population, those people are all productive. I think of my grandkids, and I just wish that my parents had had 20 or 25 years to spend with my grandkids so they could depart the wisdom that they had to my grandkids. That's the greatest gift of all, the knowledge that goes from generation to generation. Well, you know, and one of the things that always amazed me, we're coming off of this COVID pandemic, and I never understood why we weren't putting more emphasis on the things that you teach to just have general good overall health, a strong immune system. Those are the types of changes that we need to be incorporating into our society. We totally agree. And so the last third of the book is all of those things. There are over 180 things that you can make a choice of that help you stay young. We And at our website, it's a greatagereboot.com. Um, there are people have submitted um, over 50 uh, names of supplements or small molecules that they think they should take and would they help um, reduce aging. So you can ask us questions like that at the website, greatagereboot.com. But about 18 of them have some data behind them that is solid in humans. Um, that shows that these actually do make a difference. So let me give you one that we didn't expect. So there's some easy and fun things to do and some inexpensive things like this. So um, creatine is a muscle-building supplement that young kids use, um, 15 to 35, to build muscle. Um, but in fact, um, in... Um, the randomized controlled trials, it helps prevent muscle loss as you get older, and it not only helps prevent muscle loss as you get older, but it helps prevent dementia as you get older in these randomized controlled trials. What is it? It's about $5 a month for the right um, amount of it, but that's a pretty gosh darn easy thing to do. And so there are 180 things you can do, and as Albert says, you want to do things that you love that love you back. Um, so you may not like walking. So I always told him to walk 10,000 steps a day. He doesn't like walking, but as you've heard, he loves playing with his grandkids and he gets step equivalents, about 83 steps a minute for playing with his grandkids. Or his wife loves gardening and he loves um, also playing ping pong and beating me in ping pong. So he gets about 100 steps a minute for each minute he plays ping pong. So this is about finding things you love to do that love your body back. And there are a huge number of choices in that last third of the book. And the other thing that's important, we're dependent on the government and we become more and more dependent on the government. 
And I've dealt, we developed in New York City. We developed, we owned the Nets at one time, Barclays Arena, uh, Metro Tech, a whole bunch of stuff. And what we learned is that government can only help you after you've helped yourself. We have to tell the government what we want or what we need. And we have a society that doesn't understand for the first time we have the power to decide what happens to us. Nobody can empower us. They can give us the opportunity to do it. So this is not going to change. The government will change policies. But the government is not going to make sure that we eat while it's light. The government is going to make sure we seven and a half steps. So what happens to us is it's all in our own hands. And that's the beauty of this. Not everybody's going to do it, but a lot of people will. And for the people who will, it's going to be a much better, longer, happier life. That's the goal. And once again, the book is The Great Age Reboot, Cracking the Longevity Code for a Younger Tomorrow. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit greatagereboot.com. Dr. Voisin and Albert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss how to have the dreaded money talk. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. I'm so happy to be speaking with you here today. Odette, many people avoid talking about money. Why do you think so many couples have a difficult time talking about their finances. Oh my goodness, the dreaded money talk. I think that, you know, people don't like talking about money just because it's just such a heavy topic. It feels like a heavy topic. And in marriages in particular, a lot of times it leads to an argument. And it's just filled with, you know, associated with feelings of pressure, of stress, of anxiety. And sometimes one partner might feel that they're being criticized or judged. There's also a lot of shame regarding that money conversation, right? People have shame regarding their debt, or maybe they have shame about their spending habits, or sometimes you might have shame about maybe not making enough money or not meeting the expectations of your partner when it comes to money, or not being able to stick to a budget or curb spending. Basically, there's endless reasons (laughs) why people might feel shame or stressed or pressure when it comes to talking about money. But I think that it really boils down to our thoughts and our beliefs around money, 
and maybe the differences in those beliefs, and then the spending habits that we form as a result of those beliefs. So perhaps you believe that money doesn't grow on trees and you have to save every cent that you have, right, for a rainy day. Or maybe you think that people that have money are evil and they've got rich by taking advantage of other people. So there's just, you know, different beliefs around money and then you're going to spend your spending habits, you're going to create your spending habits based on those beliefs. That really is the root of why we have trouble speaking about our finances. Yeah, and when you don't have that conversation, you can really find yourself in a lot of trouble. What do you believe happens when you avoid the conversation? Well, our finances have a huge impact on on our marriage and uh, you know, really on our lives in general, but Marriage is about trust. It's about communication, right? It's about being able to feel safe to be vulnerable. And these are the things that are going to lead to deeper connection and intimacy. But when you avoid talking about money or sharing information about your finances, really that trust and that communication starts to break down. And instead, you're just creating an atmosphere of secrecy and shame and anxiety and all these negative things. So, you know, it's really important that that we do have that conversation and that we do understand what our own money beliefs are, as well as what our partner's beliefs are, because it's important to have financial goals that we create together as a couple, right? As a partner, marriage is a partnership. So we have to make sure that we're in alignment with what our partners believe and what our partners want when it comes to our financial goals, right? It requires teamwork. Well, I've heard so many stories about people who have a spouse who ran up the credit card bill or might have been gambling or bought something way outside of something that they were able to afford. And what happens then is the other person treats that spouse like a child. You know, they scold them. And so the way you approach it would be so important. Do you have any tips that you can offer that maybe can help us get this conversation started in a productive way? Yes. Well, even if the other partner has made a mistake, even if the other partner has a gambling problem, let's just say, it's important for the other partner to be aware of that in order for them to figure out what the answer is together, right? To figure out how to get out of that problem, that financial problem. So it's still important to share. But just in general, it's important to discuss with your partner, you know, what your priorities and values are in terms of your marriage and your life. And then from there, talk about your financial goals, right? It's important that you set those financial goals together so that they're in alignment with your values and your priorities. So what I, what I mean by that is, you know, maybe you want to retire early or maybe you want to go on a special vacation or save for a house. It's important to have those financial goals that you form together because that'll kind of keep you focused on what really matters and why it's important to have certain certain spending habits. And you want to talk about what is going right in your marriage and your finances as well, right? A lot of times our conversations are about what we're doing wrong or we're criticizing or judging each other and and what's going wrong in terms of finances. But it's always good to start off or to to often have conversations regarding what's going right in our finances. So what are our resources, right? Maybe it's conversations regarding income or our ability to get a second job, or maybe we can take a look at what our savings are, or things that are already going well. And then from there, of course, discuss what can we do differently? What are things that need to change in order to move forward and get us closer to our financial goals? Because when we focus on what the goals are, that's something that we can agree on. Even if how we get there, we might have some discussions and some disagreements regarding how to get there. But what we can agree on is what those financial goals are. You always want to keep focus and have lots of discussions and reminders about what matters most. And I think that's the key point right there is to have aligned goals and priorities, you know, to, to be on the same page. Exactly. Exactly. That's really what matters most. Because like I said before, our beliefs may be different. Our strategies and how to achieve those goals can be different, but we can align them by having those conversations on what really matters and what we really want in our lives. That's what we can agree on. And then we'll be able to, to kind of make accommodations and compromise if we keep our focus on those goals and those priorities. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. And as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. We'll be right back. 
invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. If you've ever thought about writing a book, today's guest Sloan McQuiston would say, what are you waiting for? For more than a decade, Sloan has had an idea for a book bouncing around in his head, but he never acted on it. But the story wouldn't go away. So after his kids graduated college and left home, Sloan finally decided to put pen to paper. After publishing the Nigel Manning series, Sloan continued his creative journey to write The Risk Manager, a Texas-sized tale of redemption. Welcome, Sloan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. So, Sloan, let's start off by talking a little bit about your backstory. What were you doing when you had this idea that kept ruminating in your mind about this book, and what made you decide to finally write it? Well, The the Risk Manager is a story that's taken quite a bit from my life. Now, it's a novel, so obviously I embellish a number of things, but I've always wanted to see a book where a risk manager, an insurance professional, a loss control professional like myself gets to be the hero. And there just aren't any books out there like that. So I decided to write one. You're talking about a risk manager and you're talking about the insurance industry. What are you sharing through this story for us? The story is about a young man uh, who gets his dream job, right? And like many dream jobs, it turns out to be anything but. Starts off great, and then as time goes on, he comes to the realization that he was hired for something else. His boss in the book, Jim Williams, gets selected to run for governor of the state of Texas. And I say selected Uh, You find out in the first chapter of the book why the current governor is not going to be running for re-election again. It's a bit unsavory, but it's really interesting. I I just love the way that part of the book came together. So when Jim Williams decides to run for governor, he needs something to distinguish himself in the political arena, which he doesn't have. He doesn't have political background. And so he talks some Texas secessionists into bombing one of his buildings. He's doing some Department of Defense contracts. They're very nondescript, uh, not really uh, mission critical by any means to the U.S. defense. But now he can call it domestic terrorism. And he needs somebody to blame for the lack of security and for the bombing. And that's what happens with the main character, Rock Cartwright. I I just love that character name. I struggle with character names, but I love that one. What's appealing about this book is if you've ever had a job, you're going to be able to relate to somebody in here, right? I think everybody's had that dream job or they've envisioned that dream job, and it just doesn't turn out like you had hoped. And everybody's worked for a boss that they think is insane. And everybody at some point has felt like they've gotten screwed over by their manager. So that's a lot of what happens in this. I put it in the background of a risk manager because I've got a lot of experience in that. So there's a few stories in there about risk management. It's really more leadership lessons than it is risk management. But it's the kind of thing that's going to appeal pretty much to anybody who's ever had a job. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were speaking. You know, you entitled it the risk manager, but there's something in it for everyone. Yes. 
there are I just love some of the characters that are in there. Uh, the Texas secessionists are just good old Texas uh, cattle ranchers. They can uh, take their history all the way back to the original 300 families that settled Texas. I got the names right. Uh, obviously, the characters are fictional, but I researched that back to the original 300 families in Texas. Jim Williams, the antagonist in there, can do the same thing. So there's a lot of Texas pride in it. It takes place in Austin, Texas, in Central Texas. A lot of people love to visit Austin. So if you've ever been there, you're going to recognize some of these places that are real. And it just really has a great deal of appeal to a lot of different people. There's, there's going to be somebody in this book that you can relate to. Sloan, why are Texans so special to you? Well, that is a very interesting question. And uh, te- somebody told me a joke years ago. You don't ever have to wonder if somebody's from Texas <laughs> because they're going to tell you. And it's kind of true. There is a lot of Texas pride, and I'm not really sure what it is, but the people of Texas really love the state. I've lived here about half my life, and I love the state. Uh, it's it's just a great place to, to live, grow up, and, and raise a family. But we tend to be pretty independent kind of people. Uh, we love low government, although we have a ton of government. Right. And we're just kind of an independent group of people. And that appeals to a lot of folks. And it's a bit off putting to some folks. So what was it like for you after having this dream of writing a book for so long? What did it feel like when you held that copy in your hand and you got your first book published? It is just it's indescribable. It is just it's it's such a culmination of a task that that you've thought about for years, you thought for years, there's no way I could write a book, right? And then you start, you do it, you get some feedback, people like it, you get it published, and then you're holding that copy in your hand and you're like, wow, this is just, it's just unbelievable. And, and then when people, you know, start buying it and go, hey, I really like that. Wow, it, it, it's addictive is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I and I asked that because like you said, there are so many people who have this idea for a book or you know, they they've dreamt about doing it, but then they say to themselves, who would care about what I have to say? Why would anyone want to read what I've written? Did you ever have any of those thoughts? Oh, I still have those thoughts. But I I think every author goes through that, and particularly new authors, right? It's like, well, what do I have that's so unique? But the truth is, everybody has a story. And as you fashion that story and edit it and massage it, you can really get it out there and make it a a fun and interesting story. Because everybody's got something interesting that they've done or has happened to them in life. So I would encourage anybody who's thinking about writing to just start, right? Start with just some basic ideas. What do you kind of want the book to look like? Get, get an outline, right? Some of the main plots of the book, maybe even some of the characters. If you don't have character names, that's fine. You can develop those later. And then just sit down and start. And I think you're going to be amazed once you start how it starts to flow yeah. and, and how it really begins to gel and you get excited about the work. Sloan, what is your process? Are you a, a, a real regimented writer? Do you schedule time or do you like to have it be more creative and just kind of flow through you and then you sit and write? Uh, I'm more of the latter. Uh, I have a lot of friends who set aside time every day or every week. I should be like that, but I'm not. I still have a full-time job as a risk manager. And that keeps me pretty busy, so I don't find a lot of time to write. So when I do find it, and I'm in the right mindset, I find it flows pretty well, and that works for me. But I also have outlines for my stories, and an outline is exactly that. It's not regimented. It's like, hey, this is the direction I want to go. But as I start to write, 
I find that I, I change that. And it's really interesting after you finish the book to go back and read the original outline and see how far apart they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you start in the same place and you kind of end in the same place, but the middle is typically very, very different. Do you think a mistake a writer may make is to try to stick to that outline to not be able to deviate from it? I think a lot of people get hung up on that. Yeah. Or they don't develop an outline at all, and then they lose track of where they are. And that's the thing I like about my outlines, because as I start to write a chapter, uh, a, a great example is chapter 28 in The Risk Manager. It's called The Battle. And it, it, I title it uh, as the second battle for Texas independence. And it makes sense when you get to there. But that chapter just really, really flowed for me. And I really got into it. And then at the end of it, I was like, oh, I love that. Where do I go now? Right? I, I got so involved in writing that chapter, I had lost focus of everything else. So I went back to my outline and went, oh, okay, now I remember how this fit into everything. But – at the same time, I never put into my outline that that chapter would exist. It just came about organically and naturally. So you need to be flexible there. Sloan, what do you hope people take away from reading your book, The Risk Manager? Well, a number of things. I think one of the first things I hope they take away from it is a sense of good over evil. Right? It's a very common thing in life and in books. And that's kind of the story here, right? A Texas-sized tale of redemption. So that's one of them. Um, you know, an underdog story. I love an underdog story. I think a lot of readers do. And, and that's what I want them to take from this. But it's also about multiple characters overcoming their circumstances and achieving more than they thought was possible. Uh, and, and then I want them to enjoy the action. I hope they find the characters relatable and interesting. Uh, as I've mentioned before, there are a number of leadership lessons in here, both good and bad. And so I hope people will learn a little something from that and go, okay, I like I like what that character did there. I like the way they led that conversation or, or whatever it was, or I hate the way they do that, and I'm not going to be like that. So I want there to be a few lessons in there, but mostly I just want them to have a good escape from everyday life because I think that's what a novel should be. And once again, the book is The Risk Manager, A Texas-Sized Tale of Redemption. If you'd like to learn more about Sloan and his work, you can visit sloanmcquiston.com. Sloan, thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I hope your audience loves the book. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you suffer from ingrown toenails? Hi, I am Dr. Anand Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Ingrown toenails occur when the toenail starts to grow into the nail groove. This can cause significant pain and discomfort. They may become infected if left untreated. Wearing badly fitting shoes usually causes ingrown toenails. The pressure from the shoes that are too narrow at the top or too tight from the side can put extra pressure on the toenails. Other causes that include toenails that are not trimmed properly, such as cut Cutting the toenails too short or trauma to the feet due to activity including running. Having a family history of ingrown toenails can also increase a person's risk. There are several ways to treat and prevent ingrown toenails. Cutting the toenails straight across after a bath when the nails are soft. Avoid cutting the nails in a rounded pattern as it can increase the risk of inward growth. Wearing proper fitting shoes that do not have a pointy tip will prevent worsening of your ingrown toenail. If at-home care does not improve the condition, or if your toe becomes swollen, red, or painful, please visit a podiatrist who can provide the proper care, or even antibiotics. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. to your health. Joining us today to talk about hearing loss and its impact are Tom Kirsting, a licensed psychotherapist, and Dr. Leslie Soilis, chief audiologist at Hearing Life. Welcome, Tom and Dr. Soilis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Tom, let's begin with you. What impact does hearing loss have on a person's life? Well, first off, there's, a, there's this big stigma, you know, around having hearing loss. The biggest one is that you know, it's a sign of getting old. You know, in their mind, when they associate somebody wearing hearing aids, they think, you know, they don't want to believe that they're getting old. But it really has nothing to do with that. Um, it's actually quite the opposite. I got hearing aids uh, first when I was 45 years old. And if anything, I feel younger uh, because of it. And I think anybody could, would say the same thing that has addressed, you know, hearing loss. Uh, the other thing is that the, you know, the people associate hearing aids with, as these, like, big, you know, clunkers on the back of your ear. And the way these things are made now, you can't even see them. And they're just, it's unbelievable how, how they magnify everything around you and how it just opens up your world. Tom, do you think this problem causes a person to isolate? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, you know, it, it, when you're not hearing, you, you, you sort of unconsciously, and I could tell you this as a psychotherapist, the psychology behind it, um, you do tend to avoid situations. And Leslie could speak to that better than I can you know, as, an, as a, you know, one of the top licensed audiologists in the world and throw you some statistics? Yeah, so uh, Hearing Life actually commissioned uh, a Harris poll because we wanted to get some insights into how hearing loss is really impacting uh, people. And we found that 44% of people that have untreated hearing loss feel isolated. Um, and, and it's because you do start to avoid those social situations where um, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're unsure of what has been said. You um, are unsure if you're answering appropriately. And so uh, you tend to just um, back off withdraw and that leads to that disconnection and the isolation. Doctor, what are some of the more common hearing issues that people experience? Yeah, so there are early warning signs um, that will give people a heads up if they do have a hearing challenge. Um, For instance, if you're okay in a one-on-one quiet conversation, but then move into uh, a noisier space like a restaurant, and all of a sudden you have to lean in and you're having more difficulty understanding what's being said. Or if the television has to be set at a level that's louder than what's comfortable for others in the same room. Or if you have to put your phone on speakerphone because you're having a hard time uh, understanding a phone conversation. These are all um, those indicators of hearing loss. And I mentioned earlier that uh, Hearing Life uh, commissioned a survey to understand uh, more about how it is impacting people. And and what we found was uh, 72% of people with untreated hearing loss wish that they could hear better when they find themselves in that uh, social um, situation. And we know that holiday parties and uh, family gatherings are on the horizon for us. Sadly, 43% of those people with untreated hearing loss would actually prefer to stay at home than to put themselves in that tough um, family gathering situation. Doctor, if someone suspects a problem, what type of testing is done? 
So the very first thing you want to do is have a uh, formal hearing assessment by a licensed hearing care professional. Once that is done, uh, we would be able to guide you in terms of next steps and make the appropriate recommendation for um, hearing technology solutions that are going to address your lifestyle needs as well as your budget. But the first step is indeed um, having your hearing evaluated to find out if there is a hearing challenge. It's recommended that people obtain their first hearing, their baseline hearing measure at age 50 and then just start monitoring on an annual basis from there. What resources are available where our listeners can go to get more information about hearing issues? On our website, hearinglife.com, we do have a tool where people can uh, take a hearing screening. And, um, and that also could be a good first step for people to just identify whether or not they need to take a next step for more comprehensive hearing assessment. Tom and Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program, sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.